Hello, and thank you for listening to Lore and Legend, Tales from Our Mythic Past. This is your obligatory notice that the sound quality in the early episodes of our home-produced podcast may leave something to be desired. This is especially true in the discussion segments following our early episodes. We love the content that we produced for Season 1, and in the future we're hoping to revisit these earlier recordings and improve some of the content and sound quality. But for now, if you want to experience the best that the show has to offer, skip ahead to our Halloween and Christmas episodes, or to the start of Season 2, The Gates of Dream. But if you're hungry for more, be sure to circle back and take in these early stories. Once again, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. listening to Lore and Legend with your hosts, Sebastian O'Dell and Rick Scott. Every week, we bring you a legendary tale inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. This series of Lore and Legend is called Strange Britannia, exploring dark and lesser-known tales of the British Otherworld and its hidden beings. In this first episode, we begin our journey into the Shadowlands with a firelit feast, a witch's harp, and a poet with a tongue full of secrets he can't help but tell. This is the Rhymer's Tale. Now I'll tell you a tale of a Briton that is almost gone. A Briton of stone circles and barrow hills, of giants' graves and fairy rings. The Briton of the Beltane fires, the greenwood, the enchanted isle, the Britain of the she, the fae, the hidden people, the woodkind, the fair folk, the story folk, the lordly ones, the people of the barrows, of grins, of bogarts, moguls and imps, of goblins and pucks and dwarfs and brownies and bugbears, the elf kin and the earl king. It was a night like every other night, but at the same time not like them. And bonfires were lit on the plains beneath the dark skies of Scotland. And the flames of the fires threw dancing shadows across the canvas of a hundred tents. And there, rising up in their midst, was the Tower of Urkeldorn. And all around the music and the laughter ran in circles through the camp, into the courtyard, and into the hall. And there a hush descended, as into the feasting circle stepped a figure. He held in his hands a harp, and it was exquisitely carved, and it was strung with strings that seemed to be spun from gold and from silver. And when the man's fingers flowed across these cords, everyone who heard woke up from whatever they were doing and they turned their ears to listen. For this was the one that they called Thomas, true Thomas, once 
Thomas Learmount, a poor lute player now courted by the great and the powerful for the gifts of his tongue. For the words that he spoke, they had the habit of being spoken from ear to ear and written down in parchments, in poems and in books, and repeated often and many times thereafter, and always, eventually. Those words came to be true. Well, I was at the feast of Urkeldorn Tower when True Thomas was rhyming there, and as I heard told, he got his gift from the Queen of Elfland fair. A great silence fell on all the company, and everyone sat breathlessly waiting for him to begin. This harp, he said, is not just any harp, but the notes that it plays have the power to weave deep magic. It is a harp crafted by no human hand, but it came from a great sorceress an enchantress. It came from the hand of the most beautiful lady that I have ever seen. It came from the queen of the elfin land. Listen, lords, both great and small, and take heed of what I say, for I shall tell you as true a tale as was ever heard by night or day. And as he spoke, Thomas strummed the strings, and he began to rhyme, and he began to sink. As I made my way one fateful morn, my mind was full of longing and of woe. And it was a merry morn of May I went to Huntley Bank alone. Now in those times, he told us, Thomas was not true Thomas, but merely Thomas of Learmount. A vagabond of little means, of no employment, whose habit on a morning often was to drink and to stray about the paths by the Aildon Hills, carrying only a poor lute and serenading all the men and the women who happened to pass him by. I wandered in the company of birds, the jay, the cock and thrush, and with the chiming of their voices the wood all about was flush. Now Thomas told that as he was there, surrounded by the bright bird song and the sun shining in the sky, he threaded his way through the paths that crisscrossed between the trees. And then he lowered himself onto the fair grass, listened to the mingled calls and whispers of the wood, and beneath the swaying canopy of the tree, he closed his eyes for a long time. But when at last he did open them. Alone there, for some time I lay beneath a greenwood tree, when I did spy a lady gay come riding over the long glee. And if I should live until doomsday, and in that time tell a thousand tales, I never could tell of another who struck me like this man. 
than the woman was of deeply striking beauty. Her proud lips were curved like an archer's bow bent and about to fly. Her braided hair rested on strong, proud shoulders, and her eyes were deep and bright like scrying stones. She was seated high upon a gleaming white horse, draped with a crimson veil, and around its knees bobbed the heads of six glowering hounds. This living vision was framed all in the light that broke through the crown of the great elder tree that crouched on the crown of the nearby hill. Her skirt was of the grass-green silk, a mantle of the velvet fine. At every lock of a horse's mane hung fifty silver bells and nine. I said, if I never speak with that lady, my heart will burst in three. So I ran forth with all my might to meet her at the Aildon tree. At Thomas's approach, the hounds that clustered around her startled and fled away barking, leaving the lady quite alone upon a horse. She turned her head as Thomas ran breathlessly up to her, and she glanced at the poor lute which he held in his hands. And so I doffed my hat and got down upon my knee and cried, All hail, thou mighty Queen of Heaven, for thy peer on earth I never did see. Oh no, oh no, Thomas, she said, give no such name as that to me. I am but the queen of a strange land, come out to hunting, as you can see. Ah, lady, Thomas had said, won't you come and lie here a while beneath the tree with me? The lady smiled, a, a smile as if to sigh. And when she met his eye, it was as if the gaze pierced him. And then the lady did a strange thing. She undid the bridle of her horse and cast it over a thorn brush by the side. And she asked Thomas to play a tune upon his lute. And so she listened as Thomas played. And Thomas, staring up at her, felt quite faint. His hands moved feverishly over the strings until at last the tune faltered and it died away. He wet his lips and he spoke to the lady again. Lie with me here, beneath the tree, my lady, he said, and ever I will with thee dwell and plight my troth to thee. And then the lady smiled and in that smile there was something of the wolf. Harp and carp, Thomas, she said. Harp and carp along with me. For if thee dare to kiss my lips, sure of your body I will be. But I said, betide me weal, betide me woe, that is no dissuading me. So then I kissed her rosy lips all beneath the Aildon tree. And when Thomas's lips met the lady's, there was a rich, 
fragrance of blossom and the taste of elder flowers. And when Thomas leaned back, the queen's smile was even wider and more wolfish than before. Since you, my lips, have kissed Thomas, away you must come with me. And you must serve me seven years, what weal or woe may be. Then the elf queen turned and she took up her horse's bridle. She leapt up into the saddle. She spurred the animal, and the ringing of the bells on the bridle rolled and seemed to kick up the very wind itself. She galloped away, and as she did so, the great roots of the Aelden tree yawned wide to admit her into the hillside. As soon as she went, Thomas felt a dreadful lurch in his chest. He clutched at it, instantly stricken. It was as if his heart was tethered to that horse by some invisible thread, and as it rode away from him, something deep in the seams of him was being unraveled. With a cry, he stumbled forward, fell to his knees, scrambled up and plunged into the dark and the mist of the tunnel without more thought, for he knew that if he did not follow the queen, he would be left nothing more than a revenant, a spark of soul in a body of clay. He ran headlong into the space beneath the tree, a thick tunnel of mist that uncurled to swallow him. The air was hot and moist on his skin, like the touch of heavy breathing, and the landscape around him was filled with strange shadows, dim forms. Sure as I tell it, Thomas said. When you travel the length and breadth of our fair country, you will see many strange and peculiar things. Stones standing towards the sun, wells dug deep toward the earth, hollow hills and claw-marked caves, and they appear to be all but ruins, with something forgotten and unexplained. But I say, that which shows itself a ruin in the day, shows its true self inside the mists. And the standing stones are towers, and the hollow hills are palaces, and the wells are great lakes, and the caves, the mouths of wide roads that reach to the very bowels of the earth. There are great worms' holes and giants' beds, and there are other skies, ruled by powers apart from our sun, and moon and stars. And he, Thomas, he was barely across the skirting stones of this land when he broke through the mist onto the shore of a thunderous and fast-moving river whose waters ran as thick and as dark as wine. The queen glanced down at him from her mount as the horse rested one of its hoofing feet the water. Go ahead of me, you must, Thomas, she said, and ford the waters that divide thee from thine. Now Thomas said, I had no choice, and so I stepped into the wine-dark water, and I waded in, until the rushing stream came up to my knees, and my feet brushed over the slick stones of the river bottom, and I closed my eyes 
And I prayed to God that those waters would not sweep me away. And so Thomas came at last to stand, weary, stricken upon the bank. A shadow fell across him, and he glanced up to find the queen and her horse standing behind him. She radiated a deep, calm, and though a wild beauty had not abated in the slightest, her presence felt to Thomas more tangible, her radiance less serious. There, Thomas said, the queen, she met my eyes, and she reached out her hands toward me. She said, come, Thomas, the journey between here and the ocean's depths is but a stone's throw. And I took her hand, and in one smooth motion the elfin queen drew Thomas up behind her into the saddle, and she took the reins and she ascended the river's high bank to where they could look down upon the elf queen's realm. They stood upon the verge for a full moment's breath before she urged the horse forward, carrying Thomas away from his own world, down, down into a stranger land under a stranger sky filled with stranger things. about her milk-white steed and took me up beside and flying faster than the wind we left this living land behind but said she this Thomas you must hold your tongue whatever you may hear or see for speak you a word of elfin land and middle earth you'll never more see Welcome to the show, to all of our listeners, the first Law and Legend. This is the part of the show where we have a discussion about the folklore behind the story that we've told and why we like the story and what kind of decisions we made when we put it together and how to tell it and that kind of thing. So, yeah. um, I'm Rick Scott. And I'm Sebastian O'Dell. To introduce myself, um, I'm an artist and an illustrator, and I was a history student at uh, the University of Sheffield. I did a PhD um, in the sort of the philosophy and the history of dreams, um, specifically in the 17th century, but kind of looking at their, their, their whole history in the ancient and medieval world before that as well. Um, and while I was doing that, I kind of discovered the world of storytelling. There was a seminar led by quite a well-known storyteller in the storytelling world, uh, Simon Haywood, um, who was talking about his work on uh, Irish myths and how he adapted them for performance. Uh, and I didn't know that storytelling was this living performance tradition here in, in Britain, and it was a bit of a revelation. Having discovered this, I went along to Tim Ralph's Storyforge in Sheffield, 
uh, discovered that there were storytelling festivals, went to Festival at the Edge, and then that's how I got started telling stories. And it's a good place for me to come in because that's where I met you. Yeah, so I've been going to the Story Forge for, well, it must have been since I came to Sheffield, so about three years. Before that, I did a little bit of reading stories aloud um, off the page, but not in a performative way. Performing to an audience as a storyteller was something really that I only had contact with once I came here. Before this, what I did really was I wrote stories, and then sometimes I'd read aloud my own stories, and sometimes I'd read aloud other people's stories. The, the stories that we're telling and the way that we're telling them is inspired by the world of storytelling. At storytelling clubs, people tell stories, uh, they don't read them. We're, we're kind of in a halfway house here because although we would have loved to have done a podcast where everything that we did was pure oral storytelling in that mould, uh, just the time constraints and the ambitions that we had for the stories themselves mean that we, uh, we do use texts. But it's written for performance and mm. it's not written for reading. And certainly the, the material that we do in this podcast, you know, we will perform at storytelling clubs. And one of the things that we hope is that our experience as storytellers will bring a certain quality to the performance of these stories. We, we hope you can tell the difference. Being interested in history, you know, um, I, I don't know, as, as listeners to the podcast, you may be more or less familiar with uh, folklore and mythology. Um, one of the things that appeals to me is discovering myths and folklore when when you think of fairy tales you know everybody knows the the sort of the canon of the the grims you know red riding hood hansel and gretel cinderella it's sort of just barely scratches the surface um, it's a um it's funny i in terms of there being lots and lots of stuff out there there's also but there are also lots of different versions this morning i was uh walking with a friend and she was telling me about a story that she'd heard somebody tell her and I realized that she was telling that story that I knew the story but as a song about a different character mm. such that I was able to predict the next bit of her story from <laughs> knowing the next verse to the song which was really interesting because that meant that there was a story or that got that you know probably went through another version of that story that then got made into a song that is the great thing about the oral tradition. Somebody will have picked it up some 300 years ago and reworked it in a little way or made it more relevant to their audience or their experience. People would, you know, you know, might say to her, why do you want to go to folk clubs and hear the same tales being told over and over again? And the answer to that is that, again, there's just so much of it that you don't hear the same things over and over again. Or, well, you do. But even when you hear people tell similar stories or retell the same stories, part of the art of storytelling is putting your own mark on it, you know, doing it your own way, your own performance. And it, in, in a way, it really emphasizes the idea that actually recycling material in clever and, and new ways mm. is very much a part of human culture. Mm. And, you know, people when you think about films and things and people saying like oh why can't they just write something new why are they rebooting stuff all the time as if that's sort of evidence of a degeneration of our culture 
I tend to look at that and think, well, actually, if you look at all of human culture and human history, people are rebooting things all the time. People remake and retell things all the time, and actually, that's exactly how it works. Yeah. You know, you know, it helps in many ways when telling a story to have things that people can use as touchstones. Things will sort of draw up echoes in their experience, um, stories that they're familiar with, because that does have the effect of making something feel quite timeless in a way. It, it, it brings them back to something that feels like it's always been there. You know, having said that, what, what's inspiring about the myth, mythology and the folklore for me is that a lot of it is quite new and fresh, especially if you haven't come up against it before. That, you know, we've decided to focus on a series of tales which tackles the, the other worlds, the strange lands, the fairy folk, but at the same time uh, kind of focuses in on a particular cast of characters which I was certainly not familiar with, this pantheon of elf lords and elf knights, yes, uh, the rulers of the other world. Our elfin characters are less going to remind you of helpful elves that populate um, Rivendell and more, in fact, going to remind you of Sauron and <laughs> dark creatures like that. idea of using this as our framing tale was yours. So uh, what was it that made you pick out Thomas the Rhymer? Thomas is an attractive character and it's a very interesting uh, narrative and idea. Mm. You know, Thomas is a, a folk prophet who kind of exists in uh, a medieval romance mm. that gets translated into popular ballads mm. that are sung uh, sort of much later on, sort of in the, uh, the 16th and 17th centuries, I think. There are uh, a number of prophecies that are sort of attributed to him and have become part of sort of folklore and folk legend. A, a well-known character in Scottish folklore who kept 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 coming up. So there's a there's a connection here then between a historical individual um, and sort of England's historical past and the prophecy of of things that then took place through you know recorded history and the kind of hidden world behind the the world that Thomas's gift is purported to have come from, the kind of Yes, there's a um, there's a relationship between the, the tale of Thomas uh, and his prophetic power um, and that makes him an ideal chorus mm. for our series. I mean it's the Bardic character, isn't it? The idea of story as a revealer of truth. Yeah. Uh, storytelling and music uh, as the bearer of magic and tradition um, and myth and legend, um, it unlocks that world. Yes. So the art of storytelling comes to be associated with the magic of the, of the other world that is being described. Mm. The storyteller is almost um, uh, given the gifts of, of the land's magic as it were, to, to, to bring it to everyone else. Yeah, yeah. The story is in itself, you know, it's weaving the magic, yes. weaving the power, and, you know, the gift is given to the storyteller, and the storyteller gives the gift of the story to you. 
And so it's, it's good as well that, you know, we've taken this character of Thomas the Rhymer and something that uh, some of our stories are based on or also exist as folk tales or ballads. Um, so we've got verses in there and that's a, a storytelling technique that's sometimes called a cantifable, where you mix up like telling a story with bits of verse and song. Yeah, uh, we're not going to try and sing any of it because that's <laughs> that's not a talent that either of us have. Um, but if you do, then then come and work with us. <laughs> so as you as you listen to the stories, um, when the verses are invoked, you know, the, in those moments, that's when Thomas the Rhymer is reciting uh, to his audience at uh, at the tower in, in Scotland. The tale of Thomas is, is uh, serving for us what is known as a framing tale. Listeners, you know, probably the uh, the best example, the most well known example, will be the Arabian Nights. The the Sultan um, likes to to sleep with a virgin and then cut off the head in the morning, uh, but Shazarade forestalls this by telling him um, a thousand and one tales. Uh, it's supposed to be, yeah. So yes, we, we've kind of adapted the tale of uh, Thomas the Rhymer so that he's our chorus, you know, he's going to be our guide into the uh, the mysterious realms of the uh, the elfin lands uh, and the elfin queen. Um, the uh, elements of that tale are going to be drawn from the, the medieval poem, the romance, and also the ballads. Uh, that sung about Thomas. So, so the format almost of the series is that um, Thomas has been abducted away to uh, Elfland by the Elfin Queen, and as they move through Elfland, the Queen will tell uh, stories to Thomas. Um, so each week you'll hear a new uh, new story from uh, English folklore about about the Elflands. We've constructed the framing tale. We have somebody who is at the Tower of Ursul doing listening to Thomas the Rhymer sing a song about his meeting with the Queen of Elfland. He's the one telling the stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I mean, it really does get that convoluted in a lot of these things. Um, I don't know if you've read the uh, the A Thousand and One Nights recently, but you'll, you'll be inside one story and somebody will stop to tell a story and somebody in that story will top, stop to tell a story. It's not going to get that confusing in this podcast, we promise. <laughs> but, only we have that kind of time. <laughs> if only you had that kind of time. Um, but, uh, it, yeah, it's a nice device. It's fun and it gives us lots of opportunities for all our tricksy stuff. I thought it sort of interesting because in, you made mention uh, of the Queen is going to show him the sort of real Britain. He, as though he knows a sort of shadowy, flimsy veneer of the real Britain, which is sort of wilder and uh, more kind of sinister than, than, than he would expect. I particularly like the um, the reference to other skies ruled by other powers of our own sun, which um, is actually one of my favorite pieces of uh, imagery about the other world, because it's almost always, it's not always, but quite frequently they go underground, they go into barrows or caves, and yet the light is shining there. 
Um, not, uh, not, you know, like an artificial light or the light of a candle, but the light like the sun. And it, it gives this kind of sort of strange kind of like sense of being turned upside down. You've walked into the underground and there the, the sun is shining, but it's, it's not our sun. And that gives you this it's a very simple device, but I, for me, it gives this kind of sense of, a, of an entirely different world and entirely different powers that you're not used to. Um, so I, I was very keen on that. And yeah. Yes. Well, the, um, the the meeting with the queen takes place in this liminal space. Uh, you know, there are lots of different elements to that. Uh, I mean. Aildon Hill is a perfect kind of location for this tale because they are volcanic hills, mm. um, which might in fact be a formation called a, a, a lacolith, uh, explosions of rock deep underneath the Earth's surface subsequently raised to break the crust. They are from underground. Mm. There are sort of ancient settlements there. Aildon itself is an old Welsh name for an old fort, mm. and uh, there was a Roman signalling station there. Uh, Aildon was was believed to be one of these hollow hills, you know, the places where you might gain entrance to uh, this other kingdom. In, in quite a lot of stories involving the other folk, uh, the meetings with them do occur at these kind of threshold places. Um, in uh, Welsh mythology, it's common to have it have them occur at a crossroads. Very frequently, you get the crossing of water, so um, going over rivers and across the sea um, allows you to enter uh, the kingdom of fairy. But you also get liminal times. At so certain times of the year, the boundary between the the other world and our world becomes. Uh, easier to cross, more permeable. Um, so in uh, in Irish mythology, you get um, Beltane and Samhain, which uh, is uh, spring and autumn festivals. Uh, I think in Old English myth, you get New Year's is, is, a, is a particular time, um, and the solstices, of course, so there are certain times of year and certain places where that, yeah, mm. where there's not such a solid boundary. Yes, and all all of those things are present in Thomas Lorimer's tale. So he uh, he strays uh, strays around the woods uh, on the first days of May. Yeah, um, he falls asleep under a tree. You know, falling asleep and waking up into one of these journeys. Yeah. Um, it happened, it recurs in quite a few sort of poems and tales. Uh, sometimes it's suggested that it's a dream, sometimes it's not mentioned, but you know, somebody falls asleep and that's, and that's where it all starts. Mm. There are certain trees which are also thought to mark the boundary between these worlds. And so the tree on Aildon Hill, which is a hollow hill, There was a a lot of sources say that it's a hawthorn tree, Um, but I actually found uh, a blog post by a researcher called Lee Ray, 
who talks about this and he says that it's probably not a hawthorn tree. In fact, it's more likely to be an elder tree. And that's sort of also the reason why in my telling of the tale, you know, one of the, one of the commenters on his post said there's an association as well between elder trees and elder wine having uh, magical properties appropriate also because uh, Thomas seems to possibly be a bit of a drunkard as well, <laughs> a bit of a wastrel. He likes the taste of elderberry wine. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and so then, yes, and then they go, they go under the tree uh, into the hollow hill. And then they cross a river, they cross the, the water boundary. Yes. So uh, almost every single one <laughs> of those uh, markers of liminality exist either in the romance or in, in the ballads. They are all woven together here. One of the one of the pieces of description I really liked was uh, the Queen's smile as wolfish, having something of a wolf about it, which... Um, really quite plays up the, the sort of element of the fairy queen as this um, a kind of seductress character whose beauty has enchanted Thomas. And then you know, she, 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 she even tells him that he's, he's, he's playing with fire by, by kissing her, but he, he can't resist and is therefore um, sort of brought under her sway which is quite uh, a, a common theme, sort of uncontrollable desire um, as, a, as, a, as a starting point. Facial attraction. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, that's the essence in some ways, isn't it, of uh, enchantment. Beauty that is beguiling, but also deadly. Mm. Beguiling, that's the word. <laughs> as an addendum to the earlier discussion, um, the thing about Thomas being sort of the uh, the chorus to repeat through our stories, you have this story of Thomas the Rhymer, but all of the action in the actual story is carried out by the um, by the Elf Queen. Um, Thomas is a sort of hapless participant, but um, who sort of uh, dragged along by the caprices of fate. Um, yes, in a way, um, it's almost the, the, the Queen is our guide, but the Queen is Thomas's guide, and then mm. Thomas is letting us into the story. Yeah. Uh, and there may be consequences to that, as, as we will see. Yeah. He's, um, there's a, a transformation suggested that you know we're going to maybe see that process that Thomas who starts out on this journey doesn't seem to be the uh, the kind of legendary personage that uh, that we're introduced to at the start of the story Just, yes that's true we um, by the time you jump to him in the forest he's now a, a drunkard uh, a reprobate as opposed to you know some sort of legendary folkloric figure so contact with the other world uh, will change you yes the the powerful and um, sometimes costly gifts that it brings um, are uh, a force for for change in 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 people's stories is is one of the things the um, you have the the thing of um, in the in the kind of hero's journey the before embarking on their on their quest, the hero 
receives supernatural aid and the accomplishment of whatever quest within the unknown with the help of whatever these gifts are is the thing that moves their plot, their story in a sort of personal sense. Always got a bit of, got to get a bit of candle in there. <laughs> I was going to say we can't we can't claim to be a serious podcast of uh, folklore if we're not going to discuss uh, the hero's journey. Thomas's journey will continue next week, when the Elfin Queen unfolds for him the fearful tale of the Curse of Pantanus. You've been listening to Lore and Legend, Episode 1, The Rhymer's Tale. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Rick Scott. Music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentall. For news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore, find us at www.loreandlegend.co.uk or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Of Law and Legend. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, there are a number of ways that you can support us here at Law and Legend. We're committed to keeping the episodes in this series free of adverts, but if you choose to listen to Law and Legend through the Radio Public app, listening to a few short sponsor messages between episodes will generate some modest sponsorship money for us. You can download Radio Public for free on the Android or Apple Store. If you don't want to listen to any ads, please consider supporting the podcast through our creators page on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash law and legend. Financial support motivates us to keep on telling our stories and may allow us to develop more creative content for our listeners in future. If you can't afford to support us regularly but want to drop a few coins in the hat, you can do so using our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash law and legend.